0: As the internet continues to grow, it's easy to lose sight of the tool we use every day to access it, a web browser. I'll talk about Google Chrome's continued dominance among web users as Microsoft's user base continues to crater, even after the shift to Microsoft Edge from the infamous Internet Explorer. Plus, typography. It surrounds us everywhere we go, from logos to signs to books to web pages. Typography is the cornerstone of it all. Today, we'll talk a little typography history, some basics, along with a few typography tips you can put into practice today. All this and more on The Rightly Designed Show. No man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice. You're listening to the Fusion of Form and Function. This is the Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Thomas and this is the Rightly Design Show. So Microsoft recently has been having some issues holding on to users for their web browser. Uh, and it says recently in an article that came out in Business Insider that they actually lost over 300 million browser users in 2016, mostly to Chrome. So it's really interesting. The article goes on. It says one of the one of uh, one of Google's most successful products beyond search is obviously its browser. And in 2016, uh, it was an epic year for Chrome at the expense of Microsoft's Internet Explorer. Even Microsoft's new browser Edge, baked into nearly 400 million computers using Windows 10, hasn't stopped people from fleeing Microsoft's browsers. So far in 2016, IE and Edge have lost about. 331 million users, reports Computer World's Greg Kaiser, based on data from Net Applications, a website that tracks the market share of operating systems and browsers on the Internet. Internet Explorer began the year at about 44% of the market share and ended October at about 23%. Edge started the year at about 3% and ended at about 5%. Chrome started 2016 at 35% market share and ended the, Octo- and ended, uh, the October market, sh- uh, and ended mar- October at 55%. Microsoft lost 40 million browser users in October alone, Kaiser calculates. There's a certain irony to this. Way back in 2001, the US Department of Justice successfully sued Microsoft for embedding Internet Explorer into Windows and snuffing out other browser makers, namely Netscape. Uh, You probably remember Netscape. Netscape Navigator was pretty popular back in the early 2000s and late 90s. Uh, But it goes on. It says Netscape was was the company and product that initially turned Mark Anderson into a tech tycoon. The DOJ argued that Microsoft had abused its basic monopoly status with Windows to drive out competition in other software areas. Microsoft was subject to a decade of DOJ oversight, and the case was one of the big reasons why founder Bill Gates left the CEO role. In 2016... Uh, it's 2016, and Microsoft has not lost its leading position in the PC world. It still accounts for 91% of the desktops, and for much of that time, the fact, uh, the fact that IE was included with Windows made it the most popular browser in the world. For most of 2015, IE had over 50% of the share and Chrome about 27% of the share. But if Microsoft's decline in browser continues uh, in the way it has been this year by the end of 2016, IE will drop below the 25% mark. So it's a really interesting article uh, if you're a browser user. A lot of people I know personally use Chrome. Uh, a few others use Firefox and Safari. I've noticed that myself, just uh, in terms of developing websites. I've seen IE starting to drop off over the years. Now, this chart again, I'm gonna—I'll leave a link to it in today's show notes over at rightlydesignedshow.com/slash/thirty-three. Uh, but an interesting little chart here that they included, and it just goes through and it shows the progression of the different browsers. So it's got, uh, down, like it mentioned in the article, up from about thirty-five percent. You have Chrome going up to about 55% and continuing to grow. And you can see Internet Explorer continu- continuing to drop off. Uh, and then it's, uh, it's got Edge, Microsoft's latest browser, just kind of seems to hover around 4 or 5%. So again, I'll leave a link to that in the show notes so you can take a look at that. But the reason why that's relevant, and I thought that might be worth pointing out, is because specifically in the development world for the last, oh, I don't know, 5-10 years, there's been a certain stigma that surrounded IE, or Internet Explorer. And that's because very early on, uh, you know, when the web was really starting to progress and make leaps and bounds with you know, Web 2.0, as it was called at the time, and different design and development standards really uh, going to the forefront, uh, a lot of designers and developers, myself included, were finding that IE was really a huge hurdle in the way of that because a lot of the new web technologies that are inherent in HTML5 and CSS3 were not supported in things in in Internet Explorer. So anything like 7 or back and even 8 and back just really would cripple any of the efforts that you would make as a web developer to be able to create really stunning, powerful, intuitive website designs. That problem has largely been alleviated because older versions of IE have become just about obsolete. But they are still around. But at that time, uh, it was common for a lot of people who were using IE or using older versions of IE to view the web and to see lots of new or, you know, more and more websites popping up across the web that did not appear properly. that didn't render properly. So it just over time, the accumulation of IE from the developers, you know, the developer world to just everybody else who is trying to use it, noticing more and more websites weren't appearing properly it just developed the stigma that it's just a terrible browser. It just, it's slow, it's, it's clunky, it's old, half of the internet doesn't show up on it properly. And I think that's just kind of carried through. And I don't have a lot of stats, you know, to kind of verify this. It's just kind of, uh, from my perspective, specifically being on the development end of it, I remember I had to make a special part of my workflow to go through. And it was almost like developing a second website sometimes. You had to go through and you had to do tons of ridiculously complex and difficult hacks just to make something appear properly in IE7 or IE8. Thankfully, most people don't use that. Most people are using the latest versions of, you know, the the last version of Internet Explorer. They're using Edge, or as this article denotes uh, accurately, most people are using Chrome, which handles most new web technologies just fine. But over time, it just kind of developed this stigma. So where if you're using IE, there's a good chance the website that you're trying to view, especially if it was developed more recently, isn't going to show up properly. So that caused a lot of problems for people. So my theory revolving that is that it's a branding issue, is that because for so long Microsoft's Internet Explorer has been synonymous with websites not showing up properly, that I think now they're finding it difficult to overcome that stigma. I think even though Edge properly handles all the latest web technologies, I still think that that has followed them. And I think that shadow still kind of haunts them to this day to where even if it's not necessarily justified, you have a lot of people jumping to Chrome or even Firefox since they've been known since the very beginning to be kind of at the forefront of the latest web technologies. And what does that mean for you as a browser? What does that mean for you? as you're hosting your website or as you're running your website, that means that those browsers have the highest likelihood, at least over time, since they're at the forefront of the latest technologies, of showing the website, uh, every website properly, or at least the closest to it uh, that is possible when developers are using the latest technologies. So the kind of lesson or the takeaway from that is if you're gonna offer a free product or service, if you're gonna offer something that's become synonymous with who you are and what you do, you're gonna wanna make sure that it's a good product. Microsoft doesn't really make any revenue off of, off of their web browser directly. It's free, it's built directly into you know, the OS, something you can just go download if you don't already, don't already have it, which you would if you're buying Microsoft products. But there's no, real sale, there's no real revenue from that for them. It really is just almost a service or an, an added feature to their OS, so it's nothing in and of itself that produces a revenue. So if that thing is not well built, it reflects poorly on your brand, on your company and it can just uh, it can uh, make it more difficult for people to find tr- uh, trustworthy uh, the different things that you develop moving forward. So interesting thing to take away from that. And uh, also interesting as well to see what people are using. A lot of people, as it mentions in this article and it goes through in detail, a lot of people are using Chrome, and that number only seems to be increasing. Same thing for um, Firefox also seems to be... They kind of go in waves, but Firefox seems to be growing steadily uh, as well. So again, I'm going to leave a link to this article in the show notes if you'd like to check that out. So it's uh, yeah, definitely interesting in, to go through the stats and to see how different browsers uh, have been growing, especially just for the year of 2016. And now this... How many emails do you currently have in your email inbox? Is it one, two, a hundred, a thousand, or even more than that? I recently came across a tool that helps keep your email inbox clean and makes managing your email much more efficient. So if you've got a ton of emails in your inbox right now, this can come in really handy. Sainbox is a tool that you can sign up for and it will automatically go through all the email in your entire account. And what it does is it will sort your email inbox for you. If you have thousands and thousands of emails sitting in your inbox right now and you just haven't had the patience or the time to go through and manually sort them, which is totally understandable. Sanebox will actually create a folder called Sane Later and it will take all the emails sitting in your inbox and it will try to calculate which ones are important and which ones are not important and it will toss those not so important ones into the Sane Later. If you've got, you know, thousands and thousands of emails, it will take the oldest ones and it will toss them into a separate folder that it creates for, for you called Sane Archive. Uh, so there will be just the absolute oldest emails and it will toss them in there for you. And then it will just leave the ones that it finds it thinks are most important in your inbox. Now from there, what you get to do is you can actually go through and train SaneBox to know which emails are the most important and which are can be uh, you know dealt with a little bit later. So that over time, as you train it, only your most important emails will show up in your inbox, and your not-so-important ones will show up in Sane later. Now, they have a whole bunch of other features, too, that I've been testing out, and they're really helpful. So, like, for example, if you subscribe to a lot of email newsletters, which I do, I've got a lot of different email newsletters that I'm subscribed to, it will automatically push those into a folder called Sane News. And it does a really good job of detecting whether or not they are newsletters to begin with, uh, but you can, just like anything else, you can train it just by dragging one of your, e- an email newsletter that you receive in your inbox, drag it into the same news. And from that point forward, everything that you receive from that email contact will always go into that folder. So it makes it, it makes the management of your email super fast. See, I'm a person who I make it a daily habit to try to get inbox zero Meaning that by the end of every day, I like to make sure that every single email has either been sorted or assigned to a task or some action has been taken on it and that my email inbox is at zero. Well, SaneBox takes care of a vast majority of this for me by sorting you know, things that aren't as important into another folder or notifications that I don't need to take any action on. It sorts them all for me. Email newsletters, it tosses into another folder. So it does a lot of the heavy lifting before I even sit down to go in and organize any of my emails. So it saves a ton of time that way. Uh, one of the other features I've started using, and i got a whole bunch of them in there, and these are just the ones I've used. One is called Sane Black Hole. So if you've ever had a problem where you've unsubscribed from a newsletter, from a mailing list, and they keep emailing you anyways, or you just never subscribed to begin with, and it's just obviously junk mail that gets somehow gets through your junk mail filter, you can just toss it in this sane black hole folder. And what that'll do is ensure that you never hear from that email uh, sender again. It is the ultimate unsubscribe button, and you will never. It just automatically deletes that email. Uh, from any further emails from that person at that point forward. So they got that and a whole bunch of other features. Uh, So if you're uh, working heavily in email these days, which most of us are, SaneBox can actually save you some serious time. So as a listener to the Rightly Designed Show, uh, SaneBox is going to give you a 15-day free trial. So you can jump in there, get your feet wet, test out some of the features, see if it works for you. Uh, You can technically just jump in there and have it clean up your inbox for you so you can really put it to the test. Uh, and in addition to that, they're also going to give you a $15 credit if you decide to sign up for one of their packages. So that's a $15 credit that you can apply to whichever package you decide works best for you. And you can do that if you visit SaneBox.com slash Rightly Designed. That's SaneBox spelled sanebo xcom Rightly Designed. Again, that's SaneBox.com slash Rightly Designed. With a ton of WordPress themes on the market, finding one to help you accomplish your goals can be a bear. Notable Themes takes a new approach by offering niche-specific themes and plugins. From building your email list to gaining more followers and boosting sales, everything is crafted to help you strategically grow your audience so you can spend more time on what you do best. Best of all, themes are super easy to set up and are accompanied with a step-by-step video tutorial. It's time to get a site that does more than just look pretty. Hey, that's Notable Themes. Design. Branding. Marketing. WordPress. Helping you build a better brand through the fusion of form and function. This is the Rightly Designed Show. Okay, so the main thing we're going to talk about today is typography and some of the history and some of the basics about typography and why it is so important. So to start with, I thought I'd just read a quick snippet that actually just gives a brief history into the printing press, actually. Which is in a lot, uh, a lot of ways where typography started to really blossom and start to take root. I mean, obviously, type typography goes back way further than that. You know, even from the the type of, of handwriting and scrolls and parchment and that sort of thing that they've had long before the printing press was ever invented. But this is really where the actual art of typography began. The the management of you know uh, you know the different typefaces that were being created movable type technically came before the printing press but it's really where it got its culmination uh, and it says the printing press was invented in Holy Roman in the Holy Roman Empire by German Johannes Gutenberg around 1440 based on existing sprue, uh, screw presses Gutenberg a goldsmith by profession developed a complete printing system which perfected the printing process through all of its stages by adapting existing technologies to printing purposes, as well as making groundbreaking inventions of his own, he newly de- his newly devised hand mold made for the first time possible the, per- the precise and rapid creation of metal movable type in large quantities, a key element in the profitability of the whole printing enterprise. So this is really where the process of creating letter forms and shapes and types and moving them around and arranging them to create uh, typography. In essence, uh, that's really where it got its beginning. And it goes on, it says the printing press spread within several decades to over 200 cities in a dozen European countries. By 1500, uh, by the 1500s, printing presses in operation throughout Western Europe had already produced more than 20 million volumes. In the 16th century, with presses spreading further afield, their outpost rose tenfold to an estimated 150 to 200 million copies. The operation of a press became so synonymous with the enterprise of printing that it lent its name an entire new branch of the media, the press. Uh, In Renaissance Europe, the arrival of mechanical movable type printing introduced the era of mass communication, which permanently altered the structure of society. The relatively unrestricted circulation of information and revolutionary ideas transcended borders, captured the masses in the Reformation, and threatened the power of political and religious authorities at the time. The sharp increase in literacy broke the monopoly of the literate elite on education and learning and bolstered the emerging middle class. Across Europe, the increasing cultural self-awareness of its people led to the rise of proto-nationalism, and they go on to... Quite a bit of uh, other information. It talks about the European vernacular languages to a uh, determinant of uh, Latin's status, and a whole bunch of other different things that kind of uh, go into that time period. But from a from a typograph from a typography standpoint, that's really where it got. And uh, it's kind of disputable, but in a lot of ways, that's where it got its start. That's when people began, you know, starting with Gutenberg and even a little bit before Gutenberg. That's when the art form. Of actually crafting letters and uh, arranging them in specific ways, you know, things like uh, ligatures, uh, ligatures, and things like kerning were really starting to take shape. Things that we know of today in the world of typography really took their roots in the beginnings of the invention, the advent of the printing press. So, another interesting thing which they actually pointed out there in that article was the fact that there's a lot of different things. That we've taken in typography today, that we've actually taken, you know, that actually came from the invention of the printing press. Another thing that they mentioned uh, was the fact that the term press, obviously, we know of the media, we know of news organizations, we call them the press. And that happened in large part because of how influential the printing press was to the actual printing of newspapers. So, some pretty interesting. A uh, little interesting tidbits there. So that gives you a little bit of a brief understanding of, of where typography, I guess, got its roots and started to flourish and, and become an actual art form at that point, which is really what it is today. Uh, it's pivotal in anything that we read and in every, anything that we see with letters and words. But that's really where it started to gain you know a craftsmanship and an, arts, uh, an art form to it. So the first thing I wanted to do beyond even just the history was to go through a few of the basic terms that are relevant to typography. And before I even do that, let's take a step back. There's an interesting uh, little uh, guide that I actually found a little while back that, that breaks down some of the core elements of typography. They did, a, they did a good job of defining typography in its essence. And it says typography is the art and technique of arranging type in order to make language visible. The arrangement of type involves the selection of typefaces, point size, line length, leading, uh, line spacing, adjusting the spaces between groups of letters, also known as tracking, and adjusting the space between pairs of letters, kerning. Type design is a closely related uh, craft, which some consider distinct and others a part of typography. Most typographers do not design typefaces, and some type designers do not consider themselves typographers. In modern times, typography has been put into motion in film, television, and online broadcasts to add emotion to mass communication. So in essence, typography is the arranging of letters and words, and there's, there's a difference between those who work with letters and those who create them. And in terms of an actual typeface itself, there's also, there's there's two main areas as well in terms of the way that letters are actually laid out, in terms of the way that they're aligned with each other. So, you know, back when they were laying these things out with movable type, they might have been using a ruler or a stick to make sure that line, that lines of text actually appeared properly. There very much is a visual art to making letters flow together properly. And I know we probably take it for granted when we look at a newspaper or we, even when we look at the web or we look at a poster or a banner, there's a lot that goes into actually creating a typeface that is very readable and is visually appealing. So, uh, next time you do, you look at a poster or next time you, uh, you know, you see a gigantic advertisement or even if you're just reading on the web, you can know, you know, you can know that there's a lot of work and time that went into just actually creating each of those letters. So typography and it has a, as I mentioned before, it's, it's an art and a science that a lot, a lot goes into. Um, but uh, in terms of an actual uh, typeface itself, there's two main Uh, alignment uh, methods and one is the x-height and that's going to be the uh, that's going to be the lower portion of a lowercase letter so like for example a c a lowercase c it's going to be where that top part curves down that's going to hit right at the x-height and then there's a baseline the baseline is going to be the actual bottom where all of the different letters kind of have their start so the y and the g the lowercase of those two letters actually drop down below the baseline Uh, But those are actually some of the terminology as well that you can kind of remember and keep in mind uh, when it comes to basic typography. Now, an interesting thing about the way that we uh, look at typefaces today is that there's a lot of different classifications. There's a lot of different typeface styles that we have today. And throughout history, we've actually seen these change. We've seen new type styles come out over time. So back in like 1450, uh, we got the what is referred to today as black letter. So this would be kind of your old English look. Uh, this would be something that is very, you know, hand-lettered. So this would be something that a lot of times they would write, uh, you know, on a decree or on something that's, you know, really uh, large or legal or something like that. And that was back in 1450s when that was really prominent. Then there's what's referred to as an old style typeface. So this is going to be 17 or 1475. So this is going to be uh, something that's going to look more representative of what we have today. It's going to be, uh, but a little bit uh, more ref- not refined, but more hand done. You're gonna f- you're gonna see more flaws in the letters, and especially because the printing was of course so new at the time. Italic typefaces started to make their way onto the scene around 1500. Script type uh, script faces uh, around 1550, what's called transitional typefaces, which are again, a little bit more like the old style typefaces. However, they're a little bit more refined about 1750. And then 1775 is when we got, uh, or around that time period is what we've got called the modern typefaces. And these you're going to see in a lot of, like, if you've ever seen a lot of the play or performance, type, uh, posters that were in, you know, early colonial America, or even, um, you know, even around like Abraham Lincoln's time, you see those posters, they have a lot of these modern, this what's referred to as a modern typeface throughout that time period. So very interesting to see as well, as well as the, the combination of the typefaces they used, which very, very interesting to see. Uh, the slab serif is the one that came out around 1825 and this is one that's—it's uh, often paired pretty regularly with modern typefaces. So slab slab serif is what they're known as. And then around the 1900s is when we started to see sans serif. So you see sans serif everywhere now, from you know Apple, Apple advertisements to McDonald's. Everybody's pretty aware of sans serif. That would be like your Arial or Helvetica. That's going to be those. Those are going to be the types of typefaces that that's, uh, that are classified as sans serif. So sans serif and serif are really the two main ways that typefaces are now broken down. So there's other ones, and I kind of touched on them. So there's like black letter, old style, there's specific italic typefaces, there's script, there's titling typefaces that typically are are all caps in nature. But sans serif and serif are are the most common. So some of the most common Sans Serif typefaces you may have seen before would be like Helvetica, Futura, Ariel, Avenir, uh, Universe, uh, Gil Sands is another one. And then Sans Serif is going to be, I'm sorry, Serif is going to be, you know, Baskerville, Garamond, uh, Didot, Times, Bodoni, Claritin. Those are a a number of the Serif typefaces, another one to be like Trajan Pro. There's a lot, there's literally thousands of typefaces out there, but those are some of the more common ones. Uh, so there's, there's literally thousands and thousands of different typefaces, but those are the ones you're probably most likely to come across. Now, when it comes to typography and when it comes to fonts specifically, there's a difference between fonts and typography and a typeface. A typeface is the actual uh, artistic forming of those letters, you know, the the actual designing of them. A font is an actual file that encompasses that design. So a font is a file that you install on your computer that actually enables you to type, you know, in a digital format with that typeface. And within a font, uh, within a font file is what we call a font family. So a font family is like, say, for example, we've got the font uh, Helvetica, which is a file that's on our computer. And with Helvetica, it has a family. So there's a font family. And within that family, it has thin, it has, you know, different families have more, you know, members. There's different elements. Some fonts just have one member in that family. Some have 20 or 30. Uh, But some of the most common members in a font family, you'll see things like thin, light, Regular, italic, bold, condensed, extended, and there's a whole bunch of other ones. There's other times where you'll see semi-bold. You'll see, you know, a lot of different variations kind of built in there. Sometimes you'll see uh, embellishments, which are actual symbols or swashes or different things that make up, you know, a, a font file that are in addition to the actual typeface itself. So that's the font family. And in a web, when you're talking in a web environment, like in terms of thin, light, regular, italic, bold, those types of things, you'll notice those a lot when you're working, you know, in maybe a word processor or in some sort of, you know, any type of software really. But when you're coding for the web, and this is just kind of a side note, a lot of times the weight of a typeface is determined by a number. So a really thin typeface would be, you know, a font weight would determine that. And it'd be like 100 is really thin. And then like a really fat typeface, something that's really bold, would be like 700. So in the world of the web, it changes a little bit, um, but it kind of keeps the same general idea. And then, of course, in a typeface, uh, you have, you know, of course, you've got the letters, you've got the numbers, and then you've got the glyphs. So you've got letters, we know what letters are, and numbers, we get that. But glyphs are going to be everything else. So we've got all the, like, you know, the dollar sign, the percentage symbol, the ampersand, all those, the carats, question marks, periods, punctuation, all that's going to be included in the glyphs, and that's part of an actual font file. So the stuff I've kind of covered up to this point, aside from the history, is a little bit more on the technical side, but I think it's worth covering at least briefly, just so you have a little bit of an understanding what kind of goes into a typeface as well as a font, because as I mentioned, there's a difference between a font and a typeface. Uh, a font technically is the embodiment of or carries a typeface. But one interesting and useful piece of information that a lot of people tend to kind of skip over when it comes to typography and something that's, that I think you can really find valuable, even if if you're not a designer and you just even if you just work in Word or you just create basic proposals from time to time, or even if you are, this is something that gets missed fairly often, and that's the personality of typefaces. So, a lot of times, when I'm like, for me, I'm a I'm a designer, so that's you know what I do, you know, all the time is I, I work with typefaces a lot, as you might guess. Uh, but the biggest asset and what makes a typeface, uh, you know, so powerful when it comes to design, and whether that's designing a book jacket, or whether that's designing a website or a poster or even if that's the typeface being chosen for the body uh, of a document, uh, it's the fact that every single different typeface has its own personality. And typography is at its best when those per- the, the right typefaces are being used to fit the personality that you're trying to portray with that particular design or that document. So that's really the crux. That's the core of what good typography design is, is understanding which typefaces have the best, uh, have the personality that fits what you're trying to convey. So this is essential, especially when I'm working on book jacket designs. Uh, Because a lot of times, you know, there's book jackets I've created that actually don't have any imagery at all. There's no photo. There's no, you know, iconography. There's no illustration it's just a solid color with maybe a pattern and some different design elements. And the typeface is everything. The typeface portrays the mood, the attitude, the genre, uh, It you know the target market. Everything comes down to that typeface and then, of course, maybe the color scheme that complements it. So, for example, if you were trying to do something that was a little bit more formal, if you were trying to get a more serious or classical approach, you'd want something like a Garamond. And uh, you can look these up online as well if you're not for, familiar with these specific typefaces. I also use one called Requiem fairly often, which is a a, a titling typeface. It's actually a, a really finely crafted uh, Roman typeface that um, that I've been using for a while now. So I, I literally use hundreds and hundreds of different typefaces. But if you're trying to do something a little bit more modern, if you're trying to do something that's... Uh, You know, not necessarily classical, but more modern or hip or something like that. Thinner, sans-serif typefaces are going to work better. So even like a Futura, uh, a thinner version of Helvetica. Uh, If you're going to do something more, uh, I guess, in your face or more serious or, you know, a thriller or something like that, you would want to use a bigger, bulkier, blockier typeface. Something like League Gothic is one that uh, off oftentimes gets used, which is actually that's actually a free typeface that you can go and download. But all that I I mentioned that just to illustrate the fact that when it comes to typography, and I'll kind of underscore this again, it's at its best when it's being utilized, when typefaces are being utilized to their strengths, to how they were created and crafted, what particular mood that they were meant to portray. It is very much an art and a science. So I just wanted to touch on that real briefly. Uh, but one of the last things I wanted to do is just give you a few tips. So what I've done here so far is just give you a quick kind of breeze through typography. Some of the, mo- the most essential terms and elements of typography. So this was just, again, just to kind of get your feet wet th- with typography. But I wanted to be able to give you something that was actually practical, something that you could take away with this and apply today. Uh, so one of those is kind of a rule, kind of a don't, uh, which is don't mix typefaces of a similar classification. I see this all the time. Uh, There's some designers out there who break this rule um, and they do it specifically while aware of the rule, which technically can work. But if if you haven't been designing or working with typefaces for a long period of time, this is a good rule of thumb. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is don't you like two sand, two serif or two sans serif typefaces should never appear with each other. And the reason is because what part of what makes a really powerful design specifically worth working with type, but even outside of type is contrast. Now, if you have a Garamond and you've got a Times New Roman side by side, most people aren't going to notice a vast difference between those typefaces. It's just going to look to most people. Like something's wrong with part of the, with one of the other typefaces. Like those look similar, but not quite the same. Doesn't like, it doesn't look quite right. And it can, it gives designs a lot of time an ununiformed look. It looks like was there something wrong when you rendered that, or was there? So good rule of thumb or good advice is to try to if you're going to use multiple typefaces, two or three. Typically, I would recommend never go beyond three. And this is within one piece. So if you're designing a banner or a headline or even you're creating a document, this applies to if you're writing something in Word and you're using different typefaces. Don't go beyond three. If you start going beyond three, you're you're probably getting pretty far out there. Two is actually a a good number for most designs. And in the typefaces that you choose, it's a good idea to make them as contrasted from each other as possible. So that means a lot of times, you know, if you're going to use a script typeface, you're going to use something... Uh, you know, really decorative, then you want to use something, uh, you know, more toned down, something much more readable, uh, a serif typeface to kind of accent that. If you're going to use a sans serif typeface, or let's say you're going to use a serif typeface for headings or something like that, then you could use a sans serif typeface for the body copy or vice versa. With typography, if you're going to use multiple typefaces, you generally want to limit it. And again, as I mentioned. To below th- to three or below, and in the typefaces that you select, it's a good idea to make sure that they contrast each other and complement each other. So, what do I mean by that? Technically, you know, you could use like a big bold league uh, league gothic or like New York Times style big bold headline, and you could you could technically contrast that pretty well with you know a script typeface, an Edwardian, you know. Type script typeface or, you know, even an old English style typeface, but they would clash with each other. They would not work well together. They would contrast each other, but they would not complement each other. So the goal when you're working with multiple typefaces is to find a way to pick typefaces that are distinct and different from one another while yet serving, you know, the same mood, style, and personality. Remember I previously mentioned the fact that each typeface conveys its own uh, personality. So I we'll want to make sure that uh, it does that while still at the same time maintaining uh, you know, a difference between the two. So another tip that I like to use this is actually another don't. Um, but there are some typefaces out there that you just should not use. And this might seem a little bit weird, but it, it is true. In today's design world, just don't use these. One of them is Comic Sans. So you probably see this everywhere. Comic Sans is exactly what it sounds like. It's a comic book looking font that has been around for years and it has been actually kind of abused in the sense that you'll see this for like all over the place. You'll see this on news bulletins. You'll see this if you go down to even your local post office. People will put it for like, uh, you know, medical alerts or warnings or this and that. Everybody's using Comic Sans. But that's a great example. All the different examples out that you've probably seen. Once you see Comic Sans, you'll probably recognize it. But that's, that's an example of a font or a typeface being used against its own personality, you know, in a, in a context where it doesn't actually belong. There's actually a website, which I will link to in today's show notes, which you'll probably want to check out. It's called Comic Sans Criminal, and they do a great job. They break through, they break down, you know, all the different examples. They got pictures of people who have been using Comic Sans in the wrong you know, in the wrong way throughout the years, but I typically recommend just stay away from it altogether. It's probably the safest route. Uh, another typeface to stay away from is Papyrus. Papyrus was very popular in the early 2000s when it got included in a version of Microsoft Word. Ever since that happened, I, I've i seen literally hundreds of book covers and report covers and advertisements use this typeface. It is terribly designed and it is not it is not readable at all uh on a number of different in a number of different forms so do yourself a favor if you still have papyrus on your computer don't use it and the third which most people find a little bit more surprising uh, is times new roman generally it's not the end of the world if you use times new roman Uh, a lot of the times i recommend not using it for two reasons one, it's been massively overused. So it's probably the most used font ever since it was the default font in pretty much every version of Microsoft Word until like, I don't know, four years ago. But not only that, it's actually, it's not very well designed in the sense that its readability is really subpar to a lot of the other typefaces out there that work really well for body fonts. If, you, if you're if you looking for a really common Font to use instead of Times New Roman, I would recommend something like Garamond or Minion Pro. Both have a similar style and look. Both are serif typefaces, and they're just better designed. So I'd recommend. I would always recommend those over Times New Roman. Okay, and the third and final typography tip I wanted to give you today was is going to probably be the most important, and that is favor readability over everything else. So you can throw out the window, everything else I've already set up to this point, as long as you keep this one thing in place, that will matter more than anything else. And again, that's readability. So I've noticed this goes back as well to the comic sans use. A lot of people use it because it's the, you know, they think it's cute or it's, it's creative or it's clever. But realistically, especially when it's used in all caps, which it usually is, uh, it's not readable at all. So readability really is the most important because at the end of the day, the entire purpose of letters and words is that we read them, right? So if it is not doing that one function, then, every, then nothing else matters. So whenever you're choosing a typeface, if you're going to be using, uh, you know, a typeface for reading text, make sure that as you read it, you know, you go through the line spacing is all very well laid out. Readability is everything when it comes to typography, and that applies whether, you, you know, you're creating a document on the web readability. I've talked about the importance of readability at length in previous episodes. And that applies as well to something like a book jacket or a banner or, a, you know, a blog image or whatever it is. You have to be able to take a step back from that and not strain your eyes to read it. So there's tons of different uh, ways out there when typography can go wrong in the, you know, when it comes to readability. So that can go beyond even the typefaces you choose. That could depend upon the color used with that typeface or the color on which that typeface is being set on top of. So those things can, can play a role into readability. But again, if there is one thing to remember when it comes to typography above all else is make sure that readability is not an issue. So in today's show notes, I actually included some links to some really interesting things. So uh, I did mention the Comic Sans Criminal website, which you'll want to check out. There's also one uh, a website called The Kerning Game. So this is fun if you're kind of a typography nerd like I am. I like typefaces. I like typography. Uh, it's a game where you go in and you test your kerning skills. Now, if you remember, I, I touched on this earlier, but kerning is the, it's the, uh, it's the act of you know, moving letters, you know, left to right, tracking is actually the letters, but pairs of letters uh, to get the perfect optical spacing and alignment between these letters. So there's a mathematical, like, perfect alignment between letters that you can, it's all visual based. It's not like a a measurement between two different uh, items, two different elements or two different letters. There's an actual art form to it. Um, so this actually goes through and a lot, it gives you scenarios where you get to, a, you know, where the kerning's off and you get to adjust it and to see how close you can get it to perfect kerning. So that one's fun. There's another one called know your font. So if you're like me and you work with typefaces a lot, you can put this to the test and see just how well, you know, your typefaces will give you like three different typefaces and you have to pick which of those three you're currently looking at. So if you know your typefaces really well and you want to put that or your fonts really well. You can put that to, uh, to the test with Know Your Font. And again, uh, I'll put links to this in the show notes. So I hope you found this useful. I know it's a little bit of a, you know, a brief overview, but I think it's worth doing from time to time to go through and just give some basics on different design fundamentals. Because I think that even if you're not necessarily wanting to become a designer, I think a lot of these things can become helpful with every aspect of what you do when you're building your brand. Whether again, if you just you have a website that you're working with, and you want to Be able to work with a designer or a developer to be able to make sure that that conveys your brand properly. helps to know, at least in part, what makes good typography in different design practices. Or as I mentioned previously, even as something as simple as working within a Word document or creating a proposal or something, you can start to apply these things to ensure that the readability and the layout and everything fits a style and, you know, fits a, a mood and a personality that fits your brand So as always, if you have a question for the Rightly Designed show, feel free to visit rightlydesigned.com slash question. And uh, I've got an area there where you can actually record a question for the show. You can also write one in as well. I've had that in the past uh, in addition to the uh, audio question. But I'd like to hear from you and I'd like to hear any of the questions you might have or things that I can, uh, you know, cover in some more detail and length in future episodes. And I do appreciate you taking the time to listen to the program today. And we'll see you next week. Enjoying the Rightly Designed show? Please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesigned.com slash show for links to these channels and